Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazdeh. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. Wow. What can I say? Uh, yeah. Bow down to, uh, the gods of, uh, podcast. Seth Godin just did the show. Uh, I, 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 man, you just got to listen to the show. This is going to be the best 42 minutes of your life that you've spent this week. If you're running a business or if you want to learn about how to build a better company, or if you're on the other side of it and you want to work at a better company, this is the podcast for you to listen to for, uh, if there's one podcast this year, you need to listen to This is the one. Seth Godin just did the show. I'm so pumped. Enjoy. Guys, welcome to today's episode of The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Machazzi, and boy, do we have an amazing guest. My man, Seth Godin, is in the house. What's up, Seth? It's good to meet you, Darius. When I do podcasts, I talk slowly because I figure people are going to speed them up, but I think you and I are going to have to match paces here, so bring it on. <laughs> I always tell my, my listeners, you don't want to listen to me anything above 1.1, <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, do you want to do, if I do a little bit of housekeeping and then we're going to get running here, ready, let's do it. All right. Well, Hey, for audience members who are new to the show, the greatness machine, we're about two things. People have lived their passions and those are creating greatness in the world. My man, Seth here is neither short of passion nor greatness. And I'm so pumped to have Seth here. We're here to talk about the new book today. Today is actually, is it launch day today for the new book? It is. is. Correct. It is. Oh my gosh. So we are here to talk about the new book. I got it in my hand. If you're watching the video, it's The Song of Significance, A New Manifesto for Teams by Seth Godin. And um, I'm not going to lie, like um, we've been hounding Seth to, to come on this show. So when his publicist reached out regarding the new book, I was, I was in the airport and I did a couple cartwheels, a couple backflips and, uh, and, and got him booked as soon as we could. I was really excited to both get the book and read the book. Um, and, and I'm really excited for what this book is going to be really promoting to leaders out there 
organizations out there that are really trying to level up. And that's what we're all about here at The Greatness Machine. Uh, for listeners who are maybe less familiar with Seth, you either A, live under a rock or living on the moon. But in case you are living in one of those two places, uh, Seth is the author of 21 international bestsellers. Uh, he's really changed the way people think about work. Founder of the Alt MBA, as well as Squidoo and Yo-Yo Dine, and uh, one of the first internet companies, and he's wrote, he writes, and, and has written one of the most popular marketing blogs in the world. My, my buddy Jeff Shocks is an avid reader, and he was he was really excited to know that you were going to be on the show. So, Seth, Seth, with that said, welcome to the show, my friend. Rock and roll. Thank you for having me, Darius. You're welcome. Uh, you know, here at the Greatness Machine, we love a little bit of origin story. And before we jump into the book, um, I'd love if you just gave us kind of a quick origin story, kind of a little bit of your background, again, for listeners maybe that are less familiar with you and your work. And then I'd love to talk about the new book. Well, the first thing I'll say about origin stories is they can be a trap if you're not careful. What we become isn't what actually happened to us. It's our story of what happened to us. And when you look at people who have some version of the kind of success you're seeking, you can say, well, my story is different than their story. Therefore, I'm not qualified. This person is an orphan. This person had a happy childhood. This person, whatever. So what I try to jump into is the story we tell ourselves. And the story I tell myself about my origin is I had wonderful parents. Uh, we grew up in a home where it was expected that you were going to be part of the community and that if you could lead, you would lead. Um, and that led me, because I was sort of restless, into a certain kind of entrepreneurship. Uh, I invented one of the first generations of computer games in the 1980s and uh, then was a book packager, started one of the very first internet companies before the World Wide Web, joined Yahoo after that. And then I started one of the first social networking companies, don't blame me. And uh, along the way, I've written books. Mostly, I think of myself as a teacher. Love that, man. We just had a guest, Hank um, Rogers, on the show, who was the creator of Tetris. So we talked all about the origins of video games, which was very cool. Um, but here, we're here to talk about the new book, uh, the Song of Significance. Um, so first of all, I love the book, um, crushed it, just r ran right through it. And, and for me, you know, I, I'm a conscious leader and have run some pretty good sized organizations. And, and, and I really thought that, that you and I see eye to eye on, on how do we create significance in the workplace, but I'd love it if we could I'm start gonna interrupt off really you for one second. About... I think you're selling yourself short. What did Glassdoor say about your tenure as the CEO? They did say that I was the ninth highest rated CEO in America at one point. So yeah, pretty good. That, that was Thank you. Yeah. And, and you know, the cool thing about that is that's voted on by the employees. Right. So that's, that's, I think the most important part. And you know, you know, what's funny is I think that what got that was honestly just caring about people and wanting them to be their best selves. Um, so I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, number one, thanks for looking me up, man. <laughs> that's cool. Uh, you're like, is this guy, who, who is this joker? Um, so, you know, the song of significance, you know, you know, I'd love to kind of talk about the title of the book. Like, how did you come up with it? What does it mean? You know, for, so there's for, a lot of bees in the book. Are... Even if you're not into bees, I think the stories about the bees will resonate with you. They resonated with me. And Jacqueline Freeman, who is a beekeeper who specializes in feral bees, talks about the fact that in May, about this time of year, in the Northern Hemisphere, most beehives are really struggling. They've made it through the winter. The purpose of the honey is not to make the beekeeper happy. The purpose of the honey is to give them enough fuel to make it through the winter. And if the conditions are right, the maidens will instruct the rest of the bees to go collect as much pollen as they can. And within a few weeks, they can replace all the missing honey in the hive. Then they'll get the queen to lay a new queen egg, which is very rare. 
And then in a 10-minute period of time, the bees will swarm, all of them, 10,000 or more, and leave the hive and the honey and the babies behind. And they will leap into the unknown, find a tree, and form a tight ball. That leap is called the song of, signif- uh, song of increase. Increase, the chance to go to the next spot. And then when they're in that tight ball, I call that the song of safety. And post-pandemic, many of us are trapped in that song of safety, hunkering down, avoiding everything. But we're not bees. And it occurred to me that what we really seek is significance, to be missed if we're gone, to do work we're proud of, to be treated with respect, to do work that matters. And if we're going to spend 90,000 hours at work over our lifetime, why not? Why not build something significant? Do do you think that, you know, when, when we start looking at this idea of, you know, the song of increase, like taking that risk and, you know, we live in a world where, you know, there's negativity bias. People are afraid, you know, to, you know, essentially from ancestrally from dying. Right. And so, you know, the bees are doing it because they they have to do it. But when we look at the the typical company, the typical uh, team member, what, what is it that, I mean, what do you think is, can create more of this ability, willingness to take that risk? Because I think that this is about risk-taking and, and then coming into our own when we take that risk. Because I think there's a, a fear of taking risk, at least from my experience and my perspective of watching people in the workplace. What are your thoughts on that? That's a great question. I have two parts to my answer. First one is, if you ask a typical person, which is more dangerous, driving to the airport or flying somewhere, most people will say flying somewhere. It's not even close to true. Driving to the airport is significantly, significantly uh, more dangerous. It just feels like it's risky to get on a plane. So the first thing that I would say is that to the typical worker, the things that they hesitate to do feel risky, but aren't actually risky. The safest thing you can do in a fast-changing world is make change happen. The riskiest thing you can do is stay still. But the second half of it is that we have lied to, manipulated, and broken promises to workers for 120 years. We've said, go to school, get decent grades, wait to get picked at the placement office, do what you're told, do what you're told, you can stay here for 50 years, and then you can die. And industrialists, captains of industry, have broken that promise every chance they get, right? Layoffs just to make the stock price go up. And the result is, why are we surprised that workers are afraid of change? Why are we surprised that when you make a promise to a worker, they don't believe you. Well, why should they? And so part of what it is to create the conditions for the kind of organization we're talking about is bosses and workers have to speak to each other truthfully and make commitments to each other that matter. I, I love that because I think that there's a there's a dual responsibility there. And, and, and what I've found is that, at least in my experience, I'm speaking for myself is that I think right now there is a unwillingness for, for a majority of people to take that responsibility on both sides. How how do you think about that? Well, none of this happens in one day. What I'm arguing in the book is to do the smallest unit of significant progress. You can just the smallest one that if you can make a mutual commitment with one worker and keep it, it will be easier to do it with two. You can't do this with a memo. We're talking about changing the culture. And the culture changes slowly, right? That it used to be 
we wrote with a ballpoint pen. Then we started typing our emails. How long did that take? 20 years, right? So you've just got to think through, where is this culture going? What are the incremental steps that I can do to walk away eventually from the mindset of surveillance and industrial dominance? I love that, man. You know, as I, I, I've, I have so many questions, but I, I, this is one. When I was reading the book and it kept coming, like I kept thinking this over and over and over again. And, and kind of going to, first of all, I appreciate what you said, which is, hey, this is, a, this is not a you know, monumental shift that's going to happen. This is a bunch of one acts over and over and over again throughout organizations between relationships with people taking responsibility for that one act, which is going to create this foundational change. And I couldn't agree more. I, was tell, I think people get really fixated on, oh, we got to make this macro change. And I'm like, why don't you go do one thing? Go do one. And then we'll talk. Like, like people are like, oh, I want to lose 100 pounds. I'm like, go lose one pound. You know, I'm a guy that lost over 100 pounds. I lost one pound first. Um, so I think this is about losing that one pound. Um, I, I want to, uh, you know, I, when I was reading the book, my brain just like could not stop going there, which is right now we live in a world where there's automation, outsourcing. And I tell people, I'm like, look, if you are not doing those things, you are not going to be competitive. So you have a, an AI coming into the mix. I mean, this whole like writer strike in LA is based off of essentially people positioning themselves against the chat GBTs. I mean, this is a competitive landscape that, to your point earlier, is changing a lot. Do you believe that this is undermining people's ability to create significance in the work in the workplace? I think it's opening the door and requiring it to happen. That hmm. we bluffed our way to thinking we could have both for a long time. Let's have some Aquarians and some free snacks. And suddenly we have a friendly workplace. It avoids the really hard choices. And, you know, if we think about Miles Davis or Herbie Hancock, they never, ever performed in music the same way twice because they bought into the fact that this is going to be human work and no one's going to doubt that we are present and performing. Whereas Millie Vanilli and Top 40 Acts, they play a tape because they're in a different direction. Well, if we're going to build an institution that's fully human, it's now much easier to draw the line in the sand because we know what one that isn't human looks like, right? So, you know, a lawyer is going to get disbarred in New York because he used ChatGPT to write arguments for a judge. The AI invented cases. The AI is not going to make that mistake for long. But the point is, either you're going to be a lawyer who uses AI for what it's good at and refuses to use it for what it's mediocre at, or you're not. And so this fork in the road is really clear, and it's going to get more and more clear. The same way people will spend 10x for something handmade when they could get a machine version already for a tiny fraction of the price. Which side do you want to be on? Because in the middle is going to be really lonely. You don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. I hear that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and Supply & Demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. 
from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius from Shazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now, and let me tell you, They've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stop me from fully enjoying the little things in life, canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of the sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose itchy, watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now, and let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now, I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear uses directed. And so um, when we start talking about this world where obviously these are tools, right? And I think, if, and I think that's the best way to think about it. These are tools. And, and if you're doing something that is rote, repetitive, you know, not significant. And that was really what I picked up from the book. Then, yeah, like, like those things are just going to continue to dominate until you don't have a, a, a you don't have a responsibility because the computer can just do it for you. But when we look at, you know, and you talked about this early in the book, the question that was asked of, of team members was the, the best job I ever had, you know, what, what were the, uh, aspects of it, you know, and, and four of them came up. I can read, you, do you mind if I read the four off that were really Please dominated? Do. Yeah. So, so overwhelmingly people said they wanted four things. They said they wanted to a, they were, that they were, that they had the best job they ever had. They were surprised by themselves with what they could accomplish. That was the one that crushed it, um, that they could work independently and that the team built something important. And last but not least, that people were treated with respect that you mentioned earlier. W one of my questions on this was when you start thinking of and and I come from a world, forgive me, because I come from a world where industrialism dominates, right? I come from a world of call centers and commoditized products. This is the business I ran was a mortgage servicing and, and large, large originator. And so I was thinking, framing it into that. I'm like, oh my gosh, 
all this is repetitive. I remember trying to do things of significance and being punished by the market for it. And so when I see these things inherently from a human standpoint, they make sense to me. I know that that's what people want. But when you start to think of these positions, maybe the lower level positions or the positions that don't require, you know, that maybe you need some of this like formality or you need some of this structure, how do you think that people can accomplish this while at the same time not undermining the systems that need to be in place to create value? Like, what do you think about that? Okay. So for people who haven't touched the book yet, I need to highlight that it's not about getting soft. It's about raising your standards. It's not about giving everybody a hug. It's about figuring out how to make the work dramatically better working with others. So yeah, I asked 10,000 people, what's the best job you ever had? And every single person remembered what the best job they ever had was. It's like, when was your first date? Everyone remembers. So you could work with people who say, this isn't the best job I ever had. I can't wait to leave. How do I phone it in? Or you can work with people who say, I can't believe I get to do this. How do I do it more? Now, we need, right this minute, a mortgage origination company that has 800 employees in it who are just churning it out, who are bureaucrats. We need it. We won't need it in three years because if I can write down what I need you to do, I can get a computer to do it cheaper than you. That I woke up years ago in the Marriott Hotel at five in the morning, somewhere near Nashville, and I get up early and I'm always amazed when the hotel gym is closed. It's like, why is it closed? Why isn't it just always open? It doesn't matter. So right. I call the operator and I say, is the gym open? And the person who answers the phone says, one second, and I hear them typing. What? <laughs> and then I realize they're not in the hotel. They're not even in the same state. That Marriott figured out that having all the overnight calls go to a central location was cheaper. Then she read to me a script that came up when she typed in the question. Right. And at first, I felt sorry for this woman. What a brain-dead job. But secondly, doesn't she know that that's only an eighth of an inch away from the computer hearing my question and reading back the script? And then she's gone. So the organizations of the future are going to have cadres, teams of people who are connected on a mission who are then telling all the computers or possibly low-respect people what to do. And which one do we want to do? The second part of it is, if you are ever dealing with a human, there is no such thing as a low-level job. Uh, Commandant Kulak of the Marines coined Kulak's Law. And what it says is the wars of the future are not going to be won by the generals. They're going to be won by the privates. They're going to be won by the mm. people who are going door to door. And, mm. you know, we can see that right now with what's going on uh, in the East. But the point is a barista can have a significant job because yeah. you're not paying extra for the coffee because you can tell in a blind taste test that it tastes better than Dunkin' Donuts. You're paying extra for the coffee because a human being remembered you, served it to you, smiled at you, and brought actual emotional labor to the table because they wanted to. And if I had to compete with Starbucks, I'd just double down on that. You're not going to win by having better coffee. You're not going to win by making it 10 cents cheaper. You're going to win by making it more human. Yeah, it's funny you said that. There's a, there's a company out west called Dutch Brothers Coffee. And um, have you ever been to Dutch Brothers? And so I, I went there in Arizona and they had a bunch of like young people, maybe like late teens, early 20s. 
And I sw- and it's early morning, and I swear to God, they're the nicest people. They were so friendly. I mean, they were like cheering you on as you order your coffee. And I told them this. I said because I'm like a customer service fanatic, and I said this is why you guys are going to win. Yeah, this is why you're going to. I'll pay an extra buck for that, and not even think twice about it. Exactly. The Dutch right. Brothers folks invited me and Tony Shea out to unbelievably Hawaii for their annual convention, and so I spent two days with a lot of Dutch Brothers, and. Yeah. Um, what a what a crew! That's all I got to say. Yeah, there there was no oh, way I was going to be able to keep up with those guys. <laughs> so um, you know, there's a big aspect of the book that came up a lot, and and again, given my background, my, my company was a mortgage lender originator and servicer, and our core purpose was to grow happiness. Our, behind me to my left, you see a pink unicorn. Our, our mascot was a pink unicorn. So I, I'm I was about creating significant significance in the industry that didn't have it right. As far as I was concerned. So like I said, this resonates with me. That's how I think about things. You you talk about industrial capitalism and market capitalism. It's a huge theme in the book. And, 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 you know, I want to talk about this because I think that most people maybe don't think about it that much. They just kind of show up and do their thing. I, I joked that everyone's a one inch away from the wall, their nose hits the wall, then they make a decision, right? But that's how most people live. Why do you think it's important to understand what these are as we frame this book, Song of Significance? So market capitalism, Scharfenberger chocolate. John Scharfenberger invents the first bean-to-bar chocolate in the United States. He has a big plan. He's going to sell eight-pound blocks to restaurants who are willing to pay extra for the chocolate. None of the restaurants are really that interested. He takes some chocolate to the Berkeley Farmer's Market and breaks off pieces to have people have a taste. And he sells out his entire stock in an hour. And that's where wow. the Scharfenberger chocolate bar comes from. That's where the entire bean-to-bar industry comes from. Not because someone said, I have something I need you to buy and commanded people to buy it. It's because they went and listened to the market. That is not what happens at an industrial institution that has a big factory that can make it cheaper. Henry Ford said, you can have any color car you want as long as it's black. And the reason he said that is because black cars... Black paint dries two hours faster. And so Mm. he's churning, churning, and churning. So if you're in the mortgage origination business, you can even have only one of two mottos. Either your motto is you can pick anyone and we're anyone, in which case you got to win SEO and you're just cranking it and cranking it. Or you can say you'll pay a little extra, but it's worth way more than you pay for. One or the other. And market Mm. capitalism says, I can sniff the market better and serve them better. Industrial capitalism says, I have a machine, I'm in charge. And it's very tempting, in even in the throes of the end of industrial capitalism, to want some of that. That's how you build, forgive the expression, a unicorn, which is you promise investors that you're going to have a machine that will command the market, not the other way around. And I don't believe that is the future for most of us. I think the future for most of us is going to be to create meaning for our customers. Do you think that, that, that this kind of, when we start looking at it, I think a really good example of this would be kind of what's happening in television right now. I have a really good friend. He's, a, he's one of the highest level um, agents in TV writing in the whole country, probably in the whole world, arguably. Um, and I hope he's, he I hope he's that, taking that a, a, a well-deserved break right this minute. Cause there's not a lot for him to do. You know, I haven't reached out to him. I, I probably should. Um, it's all, it's been a minute since I talked to him, but, um, but he's, you know, this guy's, he's, he's a player and he, but he, so he knows that this is what he's done in his career. And he's works for William Morris Endeavor. And he said, you know, TV's niching is you have these like super niching 
genres that are happening and people are getting super niche in what they're deciding they, where they spend their attention, right? I have another friend who's one of the heads, head of marketing at Liquid Death, same idea, yeah. right? That people are buying products that represent who they are. So is that really what you're, you're saying is like, look, we're just going to start to create a consumerism that's not, I'm not going to go buy the big, I mean, some people might go buy the bland, boring products, but that's a cons- commodities game. A lot more people are going to be doing watching uh, buying products where they watch TV, which is super niche. It represents who they are. Is this what we're talking about here? Well, it certainly in- inspires it. I've written three books about this. Um, you know, if you look at the last episode of MASH, it was seen by 75 million people. The last episode of Secession was seen by 3 million people. That's a 25 wow. to 1 difference. They were both top of the line at the, at the moment, right? If you look at uh, the market for ketchup, Heinz still wins. But if you look at the market for salsa, the number one best-selling salsa in America is none of the above. Same with beer. The number one selling beer does not have more than 50%, not even close. And so marketplace after marketplace, not just consumers, but what businesses buy. If there isn't a network effect, People are going to choose what they want, not what they have to pick. And so this fragmentation is just going to continue and continue because the incremental cost of making a variation keeps going down. If you wanted a cake topper for your wedding cake seven years ago, you could have a bride, a groom, or maybe a troll, but that was it. Now you can go to Etsy, type in cake toppers, and look how many cake toppers there are to choose from. Well, that's going to happen to everything. Hmm. Makes sense. So... Another thing that kind of came up for me as I was reading the book is if we're talking about creating this, this you know, world of significance or even using the examples that we just gave right now of this niching down, but going the other direction and looking at the institutions that we have out here that are building, that are old, they're 100-year-old institutions, school systems, public markets, societies currently built with this institution of industrialism, right? So the foundational pieces that create the, the, the doers and the creators of the future are training them to go work in a, you know, Henry or Ford's factory from a hundred years ago. Like, how do we, how do we, you reconcile that? What are your thoughts on that? Oh, that's another great question. First of all, I would like to change everyone's nomenclature. It's niching up. It's not niching down. You're uh, niching up because you're raising your standards. You're being specific. You're not compromising, you're niching up. So with that said, uh, I wrote a book about school. It's free at stopstealingdreams.com. And what I argue in it is that we need to ask, what is school for? And that's basically what you just did. And I know the answer from my point of view, but I think we need to even ask the question, and we're not. The good news is kids only go to school for seven hours a day. And the rest of the time, they're schooled by the culture. They're schooled by their parents. And they are spending time looking at TED Talks and what's on YouTube and what's on TikTok. Mm. They are learning that more than they are learning fractions. And so, yes, the culture changes. It is changing. So, you know, if someone had a career like mine 40 years ago, they were a complete loser and an outlier. What do you mean (laughs) you've had 18 jobs in the last nine years? Because I have. I mean, I'm a project person. But now being a project person is normal. And saying I've had the same job for 40 years is boring. So, We've already seen that shift happen. And that um, is painful for a lot of people because it happened faster than any shift they can remember. 
But this is as normal as the world is ever going to be again. Every day after today gets weirder. I love it. And it makes sense, right? And to, to your point, like, I mean, there's probably an argument to be made that the institution of education today from a public education standpoint, it's really more like daycare if the culture is what's educating. What scares me about that a little bit is, and I, this is just, you know, kind of riffing is I hear in, in China, what they're showing on TikTok is a lot different than what they're showing here, right? So are we, is there some like manipulation potentially of what education looks like? I have a friend who's a professor at FIT in New York. And she said, and, and this is her saying that she said, my students can't pay attention. They can't write papers. Their, their parents jump in and intervene if they, if they don't do their work. So are we, are we are, again, going back to this institutionalization of not giving someone responsibility that I, I would argue that that's creating that too. What do you think? Well, there's a couple of parts to that. The first thing is there's a great book about ADD called, about hunters and farmers. And I, Forget the name of the author, I'm sorry. For 10,000 years, we were nothing but hunters. We were able to look at the bush, notice a small change, and take action. Farming is pretty new, right? Farming is after those 10,000 years of hunting, then there was 10,000 years of farming. Farming requires the kind of behavior that gets you to write a long essay and hand it in on time, sitting still and making sure you're following the manual. And we rewarded that recently because industrialists needed farmers. They needed people who would do what they were told, ask what was on the test, follow instructions. So that's what we built school to do. But I'm not seeing any evidence that we end up with a better world if that's all we have. That if someone knows how to use ChatGPT to write their high school uh, essays, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a good thing because they still have to create value on the regular. The second half of what you're bringing up, though, is this idea of responsibility versus authority. And parents do their kids no favors when they take responsibility away from them. That the younger, you know, why do we call them toddlers? Toddlers are toddlers because they toddle. And we learn to walk by repeatedly falling down until we know how to walk. And if we take that privilege away from our kids, they're never going to learn to do what they need to do. So I think we need to combine the two things. We need to say, we're in a world where you need to lead to lead and you need to solve interesting problems. And you probably need to do both those things really fast over and over again, not spend seven years getting a PhD in it. But we're not going to be able to help you do that if we swoop in every time something doesn't work. Yeah, I you know I have a, a mentor. Uh, uh, his name's Rand Stegan, and he runs the Stegan Leadership Institute out of Dallas. And he he has a saying. It's a conscious leadership saying, which is as goes the leadership goes the organization. How do you think that we can train our leaders to be better? Because what I just heard you say is we need our leaders to be better, and, and that's where and at least it all starts with leadership. That's my belief at least. So what do you think about that? What are your thoughts? Well, culture is what are things like around here. People like us do things like this. So if your number one sales performer is a bully and a yeller, do you make excuses for that person or do you address it today? And if it's not fixed by tomorrow, they're fired. One of those two things is going to contribute to your culture. What are things like around here? Who gets the good parking space? Who gets approval? Who gets positive feedback? When leaders do that, 
the word spreads. What do we stand for? Because the worst of what you stand for is what you're going to get. And mm. we should highlight that a manager and a leader are two different things. It sounds like in your gig, you were both. But a manager has power and authority, and they can tell people what to do. A leader, that's voluntary. Not all managers are leaders. Not all leaders are managers. It is voluntary to say, I'm going over there. I'm not sure it's going to work. Who wants to come? Follow me. And there are people who aren't high in the hierarchy who lead. They are leading your culture. They are changing the way things are around here. If you find those leaders and amplify them as manager, you will change the culture. I love that, man. You know, you just touched on something and it's like, I think someone sent you my questions beforehand and I didn't know because we keep <laughs> where we keep landing, by the way, we shouldn't be landing, but like, I'm literally, it's like going in order. Um, we must be on some cool conscious brainwave right now. Um, you know, Munger talks about Charlie Munger talks about incentives. He says, you show me your incentives. I'll show you your outcomes. And, and the current system to your point earlier, it, it recommends highly managed companies, industrialists, or, and you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really, uh, incentivize necessarily in the world past. Now in the world future, I could be dead wrong in the world past. It is incentivized industrialism. It's incentivized. You know, the stock market is incentivizing the market, you know, the market dynamics of winning this quarter. So when we have these incentive systems in place, what does it take? What do you think is the, how do you like reconcile that if you are running a company and you're punished with the incentive systems that are in place? based on the past, knowing that this is where we're going in the future. How do, is this about courage? Like, how do you think about that? Well, so Schumpeter wrote about creative destruction. And if we think about the cycle of how long a company dominates in the stock market, it has gone from 50 years to three. That Toyota, because the stock market rewarded them for sort of ignoring electric cars, is in a really bad spot right now. And when somebody comes along and redefines it. Or when Kia and Hyundai say, wow, this is a huge opening. We're going to drive through it as fast as we can. Suddenly, everything changes in the market. So we've got the level of corporate strategy and that sort of shift. But what Song of Significance is about is about most of the people in the company, not the people who get fancy offices and snacks. And what we see is it is possible to build a resilient organization that's generative, that's able to leap from thing to thing while creating this. So let's think about what Reed did at Netflix. Netflix was in the business of mailing you a CD. And then Netflix was in the business of streaming to you products that they got from Hollywood. And then Netflix was in the business of uh, making their own shows. That's three leaps for one company. Walt Disney went from having an amusement park to, sorry, from having a movie studio to having a TV show to having an amusement park to having a streaming thing. How do you make those leaps? You can still do those things when you're a valuable public company, but you do those things by understanding the CEO doesn't know the answer. All of us are smarter than any of us. And creating the circles of people who are enrolled in the journey gives you the ability to leap. My friends in the book publishing business, their days are numbered because they had a chance 25, 30 years ago to build Google. Google was built by two people. Random House had more than two people. Simon & Schuster had more than two people. What did Simon & Schuster do for a living? Oh, I know. They organized the world's information. 
exactly what Google did. Why didn't they start Google? They didn't start Google because everyone in Simon Schuster was busy doing their job instead of doing their work because their work was to solve customers' problems, not to cut down trees. So going back to the comment a second ago and, and what, what I'm hearing you advocate for is that the sum of the parts is greater than the whole, right? Or sorry, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, right? I said that, I said that backwards, right? We want the whole, we want every, you know, we cannot, you know, yes, you know, Sergey and, and Larry Page created, you know, Google, the idea of it, but Google did not become Google just because of those two guys. It's because of all the, the them enrolling, and you talk about enrollment in the book, enrolling brilliant people to f- come and be a part of their vision and collectively create a greater outcome. And, and so when I read that and I wrote something down, I wrote, you know, this idea of holocratic management systems, right? Like, how do you feel like holacracy, you know, intertwines with this ideology? Because I, you know, we interviewed um, one of the founders of holacracy on the show. I'm, I'm, I went to, to Zappos and saw, saw their holocratic approach. I had, I had some strong opinions about it just because I didn't think it worked with an indust- more of an industrialist business. But, but what do you think about the idea of interweaving holocratic approach into the management system? Is that the management system of the future as far as you're concerned? Well, Tony is very missed and the, the bold work he did should be applauded. But if we think about the theory of the firm, why are some things inside the building and some things out? Why is it that a company that you know makes widgets doesn't also make its own shipping boxes? The answer is because it's cheaper to use a reliable supplier of shipping, shipping boxes than to make your own. So where is the boundary between inside and outside? Once we figure out who's inside the firm, the job of people who can control decision-making is to make the decision-making as close to the customer as possible and also have as little overhead as possible. And the problem with holacracy is it tends to eat itself because when you create a system with a totally different kind of rules where many, many things need to be discussed over and over again, it's different than what happens, for example, when volunteer firemen go out to put out a fire. When volunteer firemen go to put out a fire, they know their roles. They know what the job is to put out the fire. And within their roles, they are able to find significance to make decisions. But try to imagine what would happen if your house was burning down and then they had to have a meeting about who was going to be responsible for each one of the parts of it. So yes, the idea that individuals take responsibility is critical. But the overhead that tends to come with big company holacracy, in my experience, is probably more than we need. Do you think that, you know, and, and you, a big part of what you talked about in your book, and I, and I agree with that, like, it just, you know, I think that there's, it could, it, maybe if, if someone is excellent at it, which I, th- I don't know if this scales, you could, you could work the inefficiencies out of that system. But you talk about false proxies and standards, right? And I, I love that because I, I'm, a, I'm kind of a hardcore KPI guy, but making sure that it's the right numbers. What are, are we measuring what matters, what, manage, what, ma- what matters most, right? So, uh, you know, a friend of ours, Chip Conley, talked about this in his TED Talk uh, on the book Peak, right? Are we, me- are we actually measuring the right stuff? You know, they do this in Bhutan, you know, when we start looking at false proxies. And, and I have a really, you know, I know we're running out of time, but I have a funny story where my former company, when I left, they, they actually changed the way they did NPS 
to make themselves score higher. And I'm like, that's not the fucking point. That's exactly <laughs> like the point. <laughs> like, what are you trying to accomplish? You know, like, and, and we, we, you know, so when, so I, and I, Curtis, I told my former partners, but I said, that's not why would you do it. You don't do it to throw a fake number out. You do it to make yourself better. <laughs> you know, but yeah, I'd love to, to, to hear your thoughts on, you know, how do we, you know, really focus on standards and, and, and get away from these false proxies. And it may be for listeners that don't know what, when I say false proxies, right. explain what that means. So which is louder, an amp that goes up to 11 or an amp that goes up to 10? And the answer is it doesn't matter. It matters how, many, how much gain it has and how many watts it has. So when we hire people, we tend to hire people who look like us, who are fun to have lunch with, who reinforce uh, positions of caste and class and misogyny. But there's no evidence that those people actually help us achieve our goals better than a different group that has different backgrounds and different approaches and is willing to engage with each other. This goes all the way to the people who make brownies at the Grayston Bakery up to the people who trade stocks for Goldman. We consistently pick people based on old measures of, are there typos on their resume? Did they go to a famous college? Who recommended them? But there's no evidence that these are useful proxies for future performance. You know what is a useful proxy? Show me your work. Do a project. Mm. Let me see how we do a project together. That's a really useful way to find out if we will be able to do a project together in the first place. That used to be really hard because somebody had to quit their job to come do a project for you. Now it's really easy because they can do a project for you on Saturday afternoon and you can pay them. So when we think about who we're promoting, who we're spending time with, is it based on a model that doesn't make sense anymore? that's based on sexism and racism and classism and costing us a fortune? Or is it based on this is what works? You have no idea that Wikipedia article you're reading, who wrote it. But the fact is, if enough people read a Wikipedia article, it's probably better, more accurate than one in the Encyclopedia Britannica written by people who have degrees. So what are we going to pick? And it feels to me like the opportunity we have now to lean in to the work, not the worker, gives us a chance to raise standards. Oh, man. I'm so bummed we're out of time. I, I have the, a greatness question I ask everybody. I mean, if you if you want to run over by a couple minutes. Go ahead. Let's I'll, wrap know, up. Go for it. All right. I want, I want to be respectful. So um, we always ask everyone the greatness question. I was rushed in the beginning. I actually forgot to tell you what it was. So I'm going to throw, throw it at you. You seem like you're good on your toes, though. Um, we always ask people the greatness question. So... Here at The Greatness Machine, we're about creating greatness, and we want to learn from the best, best and brightest, and you're all that and then some. What is the number one barrier to creating greatness in the world that you've overcome in your life, and how did you overcome it? The number one barrier is the story we tell ourselves. And um, I think I haven't overcome it yet, but I have tried to use my story to change my story to one of contribution and abundance as opposed to insecurity and scarcity. That this doesn't mean you give things away. It means you turn on lights. It means you build connection and culture, and you then tell yourself the story that having done that, you now have an obligation to lean into the parts that scare you. Love it, man. Audience, I probably got through half my questions. This book is an amazing book, The Song of Significance. A new Manifesto for Teens by Seth Godin is out today. Um, this is going to air on Friday, so it's coming out two days earlier on the 30th. 
uh, three days earlier on the 30th. So you got to go out there and get it. Um, Seth, where can people uh, connect with you, get the book, all that good stuff? So I don't use social media, but if you go to sethsblog slash song, you can find videos and excerpts and links and everything about the book. And at sethsblog slash bot, there's an AI that can answer your questions about just about anything. Oh, man. And with that said, uh, go get the book. It's where all books are sold. Um, my main man, Seth Godin, so much gratitude and appreciation here from the Greatness Machine for you to come and share your work with us. We really appreciate you. Thanks, Darius. Keep making a ruckus. Thank you. And everyone, peace out. We love you. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on, and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. Appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.